we're back in the flow of things. There's something comfortingly familiar about moaning with the early alarm, shouting up the stairs that we're going to be late, and then the rush to get out of the house with hair brushed, armed with mask, hand gel, and if you're lucky, completed homework. However, this isn't like any other year for the class of 2021. Those taking their GCSEs next summer have faced a disrupted education and no one can promise there won't be any more disruptions to come. They've seen the older year being assessed by teachers rather than how they performed in exams and there are continuing developments to how the summer exams will take place. At the time we're recording this podcast, we still don't actually know when the exam period will be. Now that's a lot of uncertainty for our young people to manage on top of trying to take control of their studies. But... These exams, however they're assessed, are a pivotal moment for many of our young people. So what do we do for the best? Do we ease them into the new school year so they can get their bearings, or should we be encouraging them to get their heads down and to start as they mean to go on? Hello and welcome to the Study Sessions podcast. I'm Nathan, founder of The Study Buddy and your host. In this, our second season of the podcast, we're following six students as they head towards their GCSEs in 2021. Each week, I catch up with these very different teams to see how they're going in a one-to-one coaching session. Then, with a panel of experts in our weekly podcast, we'll discuss some of the issues that come up. Now, these could be broad themes, such as motivation or managing mental health, or they could be quite focused, such as how best to revise for a specific subject. These are normal teams, so you can be sure that we'll be covering topics that young people up and down the country will face. So, if you're a parent, a carer or a teacher, be sure to subscribe. In this episode, we're thinking about effort and productivity as we start the GCSE year. I'm thrilled to be joined by Professor Barnaby Lennon and Ian Kilpatrick. Barnaby is the Chair of the Independent School Council and Dean of Education at the University of Buckingham. Barnaby's teaching career includes being headmaster at Harrow School and helping to establish the free school in East London, the London Academy of Excellence. Ian is the headmaster of Sidcott School, a leading co-educational day and boarding school in Somerset. And he's also the chair of the board of trustees of a multi-academy trust. Sidcott is a Quaker school that lists curiosity and personal responsibility as traits that are as important as academic record. Thank you both for joining me today. So, school is back after a summer holiday that, for some parents at least, might have felt like it started back in March. All of our students were actually reasonably happy to be back, despite the new safety measures and Lee grappling with one-way systems. But we found that there's quite a stark difference in how schools and students are prepared for and even conscious of what needs to be done for them to be ready for their exams in the summer. Some of our students, such as Lee, there's seemingly no pressure from the school to look ahead to the exams, while others have mock exams coming up in in a matter of weeks. Scarlett's school have scheduled those for early November, and I caught up with her and found that she is actually very aware of what needs to be done, and also a little scared. Uh, It's a bit scary, because I keep getting reminded, like, how many weeks and lessons we've got to fill our mocks because I want them to go well just in case uh, we don't end up having any exams and it will be based off that. I haven't done an exam before so I would have liked to find my best technique but now I'll just be doing them as if they're real. 
Barnaby, after such a long absence from school and structured lessons, should we be looking at a warm-up period that will allow our students to reacquaint themselves with school life? Well, there isn't a lot of time to have a warm-up period. Um, I, I, I think that you know, there's, there's something to be said for students being allowed to find their feet in the school in the first few days, get to know staff. But the plain fact is that uh, GCSE and A-level students who are now in years 11 and 13 have got a lot of catching up to do. Not only have they got to catch up the work that they missed in the summer term, but the schools themselves have to quite, quite quickly form an opinion of how good those students are. And in the case of year 13, they need to have some data because they've got to do UCAS predictions. In other words, they, they'll be filling in their university application forms very soon. And, and, you know, it's difficult for schools, having not seen them for quite a long time, to be able to do that. And in the case of all pupils who might have exams in the summer of 2021, there clearly is a possibility that those exams won't happen. You know, I speak today, the situation is looking worse and worse. And if the exams don't happen in 2021, then surely it must be certain that teacher predicted grades will be used. Not perhaps in exactly the way they were used last summer, but it's likely they'll be used. And so, uh, you know, that's another reason why schools have got to start um, having serious tests and maybe exams. You call them mock exams if you like, but but they quite quickly need to come to their own views, if you like, about what trajectory each pupil is on. Uh, this is a long term, let's remember, uh, September to December, much the longest term. And if you think in a normal year, we would expect all the syllabuses that are being taught for the summer exams to be finished more or less in March, leaving the summer term for revision. And if, if, that's, your, if that's your target as a teacher, you've really got to get you know, shifting to ensure that you cover as much ground as possible by the time you get to March, uh, April. So, you know, I have sympathy with the notion that people's mental health matters as much as anything, that they've been out for quite a long time. Uh, there needs to be a, a pastoral assessment of every child. I have some sympathy with that. But equally, you know, the fact is that these public exams are competitive. And um, to some extent, the grade you get depends on how other people are doing. And, and you know, that's an unpleasant thought, but it's an important one. And it would tell me that actually, you know, every school ought to be feeling that they need to get a move on. They need to assess where every pupil is. Did they learn anything, in fact, after March the 20th? Um, and they need to be planning a structured programme of catch up and getting the syllabus on target to finish, you know, sometime in the early summer. So, Ian, that seems fair, doesn't it? That if we're in a position where we could have some kind of teacher-assessed grade in one form or another, and that couldn't be the same as simply relying on a teacher-assessed grade, that we'd need to have something, some benchmark to start with that the children should be working towards to, to prove themselves. Yeah, I think the whole idea of um, assessment is, is absolutely key, but assessment doesn't just come from exams. And teachers are very skilled at assessing their children. They do so all the time. 
Um, there won't be a teaching period goes by when some form of either formative or summative assessment is taken, taking place. And I think what we saw with the uh, exam situation that took place during the summer was um, the teaching profession at its best uh, because they were taking care to make sure that the centre assessed grades that they were submitting from um, for each of their students was based on their professional judgment, but also backed up by an evidence trail, which will have lasted over the period that they've been sitting and preparing for their particular course, be that GCSE, A-level, IB or whatever. Um, so the idea that we we are to rush to get to the end point, I don't, I don't fully accept because I think that there's a lot of really good assessment that's going on that can be drawn together in the event that the exams can't be sat. We need to go back to some sort of teacher-based assessment. Um, I think there's also a significant issue around uh, well-being and the readiness for young people to come back into school. And I think that's going to be a very variable picture across the country and from school to school. For the students in, in, in our school, um, for our, our year 11 and year 13 students, they, they probably feel quite confident about the way in which their learning was continued during lockdown because they were able to access lessons through online supported learning. That will not have been the same for everybody, and therefore there has to be some consideration taken for that. However, all students will be coming back, having been away from the learning environment with a degree of trepidation, which I don't think is supported by some of the rhetoric that's coming from the government, where they're talking about catch-up, they're talking about recovery curriculum. Now, as soon as you put those kinds of terms in front of a young person who is probably feeling a little bit uneasy about the whole prospect of coming into the social environment of school, you're actually putting them at a disadvantage. Uh, and I think that there is an opportunity to look at the way in which we are presenting um, the situation to our young people in a way that is, is not necessarily making it uh, any less real than it is, but putting it in a way which actually shows empathy with where they are and what they've been through and equally what their, their parents have been through. And I'm just not entirely convinced that this race to mock exams or this race to gathering assessment material in a hurry is necessarily the best for the young people, nor indeed for the schools or indeed for the teachers that are being tasked with, with this particular um, you know, really difficult thing on, on the, the back of actually getting back into the workplace themselves. So while we might agree that that's absolutely the case, um, that, that well-being is paramount, as Barnaby was saying, the the actual grading themselves in any normal year is is entirely competitive. There are uh, only a certain number of nines or eights or sevens that typically are, are released. Now, obviously, this year, the standardisation model and the algorithm was met with horror um, across the across the country um, and, and ripped apart by media um, and then parents and teachers alike. But that is still a, a feature of these exams, isn't it? Unless there's going to be something different, those schools who are able to have continued the learning, um, such as Sidcott was able to um, over summer, and then come into a school environment now and learn more, are going to be disproportionately advantaged, aren't they? Well, I, I think the, the first question is, does it have to be the way it is? Because as a society, both uh, locally, nationally and internationally, we are going through a paradigm shift. And the world is never going to be the same post-COVID as it was before that. And we need to think, is our education system and is there exams that, that fall out of that supporting this new normal, as it's being called? 
And I think it's been interesting because looking at what took place over the summer, in some ways we've been seeing in plain sight what, is, what happens every year within the examination system. And if I, if I just share with you my experience from when I was a young teacher and I was an examiner for English literature. And the way that that worked was you would um, come to uh, an examiner's meeting, you would be shown uh, the uh, exam uh, marking scheme, you'd go through it, you'd get moderation within the, the team that you're working with, and then you go back and you would mark your allocated scripts. You were marking to criteria, you were marking to um, a, 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 an exam framework and a mark scheme that had been established and agreed. That then goes, of course, off to the examination board, it goes to Ofqual, and it gets norm referenced. So under the actual marking system, you could have all the students coming up with a nine or an A, or equally coming up with a three or a D. However, that then all gets put through this algorithm or, or this uh, norm referencing system. And then you have this allocated system of numbers of A's, number of B's, number of C's and so on. And I just wonder if it's time now to challenge that. Because if a youngster is making the grade in terms of the assessment that is being made, both by their school and when their um, examination script is being marked, why then should that be altered to make sure that there is a smooth correlation of, of exam grades from year to year? Now, that's maybe an, an overly simplistic and naive view, but we need to think about the world in which to, our young people are going into, which is one where they need to be able to apply their knowledge equally well to acquiring it. So Barnaby, as a, um, as a professor and dean at a university, is that the kind of thing that you could see the system adapting to, to accept that pupils um, and students that have come from secondary school into um, colleges and then on to um, further and higher education, that you could do that based on something that wasn't a competitive ranking? Okay, so let's just uh, remind ourselves about the reforms that we saw to the education system only a few years ago, all of which were kicked off by Michael Gove. Uh, and we've just done, touched on two of those. First of all, teacher-based assessment and coursework. So 2011, uh, Michael Gove and Ofqual agreed that teacher-based assessment and coursework was on the whole quite a bad thing. And they came to that conclusion for a number of reasons. They know from they knew from uh, questionnaires that they sent out to teachers that they find they were finding a lot of the coursework rather dreary. I mean, in subjects like maths and science, for example, uh, it was felt to be pretty worthless. That's why, incidentally, a lot of independent schools abandoned the GCSE and went over to the international GCSE uh, to escape the GCSE coursework. They didn't like the pressure that was put on both teachers and pupils of having to do continuous assessment that was going to contribute to their overall grade. Um, and they found that uh, when, they, when they, again, did a bit of research into this, they found that um, teachers were under, under pressure to give their pupils very good grades. And so most pupils were getting pretty high marks for their coursework, which was totally unrealistic. I mean, in English, for example, they compared the mark that pupils were getting for the English GCSE speaking and listening paper with the marks that they were getting on their written papers. And they found that they were just chalk and cheese, that the teacher assessments were greatly inflated. So uh, in very recent years, we've seen the abandonment of teacher-based assessment for all of those reasons. Um, and um, 
And then to, to take Ian's other good point about the fact that the proportion getting each grade is rigged, which it certainly is, that's what Ofqual calls the comparable outcomes approach to grading, which means that the grade distribution has to be the same this year as last year. Now that was brought in really just to stop grade inflation because during the Tony Blair Gordon Brown years, there was very great grade inflation. So the proportion getting an A or A star grade at A level, for example, went up from eight to nearly 28%. And the, the trouble with that was, I mean, it may be that all those pupils in one sense deserved an A or an A star, but the trouble with that was that the, uh, the more selective universities found that they could no longer select on the basis of GCSE or A-level grades, because everyone was doing so well. And Michael Gove took the view that the country as a whole was kidding itself by giving all these people these marvelous, these pupils these marvelous grades. Because when you compared what our pupils actually knew, what they had in their heads, with students from places in East Asia, for example, in countries like China and Japan, ours were pretty weak particularly, again, in subjects like math science. So, you know, that's why comparable outcomes was brought in. Um, but, you know, you know I'm, I'm, in a way, I'm the first to agree with, with Ian that it's, it's not necessarily a great system. But let's remember, it came in for a reason. Yeah, uh, it, it came in for a reason, certainly. Uh, it's interesting that you cite Michael Gove. Uh, Michael Gove and I are direct contemporaries were the same age and we both went through the Scottish education system together uh, so I was interested to see the reform, reforms that he brought forward which to me felt like it was a bit of a, a retrograde step step to the 1980s where you uh, mugged up on what you needed to get yourself through an exam and then you forgot all about it when you came uh, out of the exam hall and I think to an extent that's still the case um, it's interesting uh, when we were looking at, at the, the model that predated it, where there was a mixed economy of assessment between exams and uh, coursework. Uh, and I think we also need to re remember that under that, the, the coursework uh, was, was all moderated. So it's not as if it was just um, teachers that were coming up with a number or coming up with a grade uh, under pressure from students, under pressure from their parents. You know, that, that there was a, a robust and a rigorous system to make sure that there was a degree of um, probity in the assessments that were being put through, and they were predicated by the professional judgment of teachers. So I, I think in some ways we need to be forward-looking and say, well, what are the skills that our young people are going to need moving forward, and particularly if they are going to be successful in a world which has suddenly overnight become far more complex and far more complicated to them? And do we then have an examination system that supports the development of those skills? And I would say at the moment we don't. Uh, and I think that when we think about the soft skills that we're asking our young people to develop at school, collaborative, collaborative skills, learning through doing, risk-taking, resilience, all these sorts of things, where is that hardwired into the exam system that we have at the moment, which is by and large based on what you will do in a two or three hour uh, exam paper? Uh, and I, I don't hear an awful lot of creativity coming from the government in terms of addressing this. Um, and I think when we're talking about uh, our, our position within the world with regard to PISA rankings, and indeed, if we're talking about the, the difficulties that universities have in differentiating um, students in their intake, and if you're looking at Russell Group universities, highly competitive um, universities, in some ways, that's their problem to solve. 
And they've been doing that by putting their own assessments in place, um, you know, in years gone by. I think we've got to look at the, the, the broader reach of youngsters who are maybe not going to university beyond school or they're not going to a highly selective um, university or a selective course at university and say, well, how is the present exam system serving them? Whether they're sitting in an exam for three hours and only being tested on what they know isn't really going to serve them in their, their life chances beyond school. And in, indeed, there's a real danger that it's going to turn off any love of learning they've got because they feel that the exam system is 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 stacked against them from the outset. I think we've certainly seen something similar to that, haven't we, that, um, that, that schooling is all about preparing children for the world and building up those softer skills, which then seems to be contrasted in the later years with how much you can retain in your GCSE exam. And I accept that A-levels are a little different so that you can just just empty your head of the knowledge that you've retained for a moment in time um, grading piece. Well, I, I mean, I just personally, I don't accept that that's a fair description of what an examination does. Um, I mean, I take your point, but the... Uh, I mean, I think, first of all, that exams are very good at motivating pupils, particularly teenage boys. Uh, I make that slightly sexist comment because I think that very often girls work hard to please the teacher, but boys often don't. And, you know, I spent 40 years teaching boys and found that they were often pretty idle um, until you got to within a month or two of an important public exam. And then they really started working hard. Uh, that's my first point. Secondly, I don't, I don't accept that um, if you've learned something, if you've committed it to the long-term memory, which is presumably what we're talking about, that you instantly forget it. Um, I mean, I can just about remember poems that I learnt at school for English, GCSE and A-level. I haven't remembered, a, haven't learned a single poem since then. Um, but I don't, I don't, I don't believe you do forget automatically. Otherwise, I totally agree. I think it would be a fairly useless process. The um, and, I, and I think finally, I would say that there are there are I think two distinct groups of people in this argument. There are those who are saying we should be preparing for the twenty first century, teaching creativity, focusing on soft skills, which I think all good schools do anyway to some extent. They don't have to necessarily be examined. But there are, you know, there is an important group led perhaps by Nick Gibb, who has been the schools minister more or less continuously since 2010, um, but which is, you know, exemplified by very well-known schools like Michaela School in Wembley, run by Catherine Verbal Singh, that believe in the importance of a knowledge-rich curriculum. That's what they always talk about. And what that means, ultimately, is that their pupils are being taught knowledge um, including facts, and they have to memorise those for a, a public exam. And, that's, and they do that partly because they believe in the importance of memorising information, um, but they also, also an important factor is that uh, Nick Gibb particularly, and I think Catherine Burblesing as well, felt that disadvantaged pupils, and she, you know, in a, running a school in Wembley, has a lot of pupils who come from disadvantaged backgrounds. Disadvantaged pupils uh, had been damaged by schools that were too soft on them in terms of the amount of knowledge that they were expected to have in their head. And uh, so 
she, in her school, places a lot of emphasis on testing and, and in particular, on uh, raising the level of knowledge that they, she expects her pupils to have way beyond the norm. So that if you take a subject like uh, GCSE French, for example, well, by the age of 13 or 14, pupils in her school are already learning as much French as in most schools you would expect a 16-year-old to know. Okay, they're learning vocab and grammar. That makes them much better at French. So uh, I'm not actually arguing either way. I'm just pointing out that there are, at the moment, quite different views, uh, quite different views about this question of how, you know, what are the purposes of education? And we were we were lucky enough to have um, Catherine on a previous episode where she was talking about exactly that about um, the importance of knowledge, Rich, and about um, retaining and the discipline really that those younger um, children had. She was also talking about the importance of parents um, consolidating and rules based um, education and home life. There was uh, very passionately as well, I, um, as you can um, imagine. There was one thing I'd like to pick up on that you were just talking about, and that was the motivating effect of exams, and in particular on um, on boys. While I would love to defend my gender, um, I'm unfortunately in no position to do that at all. Um, and it was exactly that. That's the, the the looming imminence of this test that would always get me to um, to work hard. But given what we've been talking about by the uh, the likelihood, possibility at least, that the exams will be cancelled again, um, doesn't that reflect badly on that entire system that um, that boys in particular, but, but certainly those pupils who will leave everything as, as late as they can, are going to be disproportionately disadvantaged now by the fact that actually teacher assessments are going to come in and they won't see reflected the amount of work that they had. Ian, do you think then that argues for um, actually encouraging pupils to um, steadily if not rapidly up their game in terms of evidencing what it is that they're doing yeah uh, i i think we we misjudge the views of our young people at our peril because they they have had this experience of lockdown this experience of not being at school and that has i'm sure given them an opportunity to reflect on just what school means to them how important it is the 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 the, the uh, central um, influence it has on their lives and I don't think you know I'm not seeing our school uh, students coming back thinking that they've had you know a six-month holiday Um, they are coming back with a sense of purpose if anything it has brought into sharp relief the importance of preparing for um, internal exams for mock exams for internal assessments um, for EPQ which a number of our uh, year 13 students in the process of completing. So, you know, I, I don't think we need to, to preach to them the importance of working hard at school. They get it. Uh, nor do we have to play down the importance of, of a knowledge economy. Uh, you know, young people still need to learn stuff. Uh, and, and that has always been the case. And I think will continue to be the case. However, it's what they then do with the stuff that I think is important. And I think my, my biggest concern and I sit both as a head of a school here at SIGCOP, but also chair of a board of trustees uh, for a multi-academic trust which focuses on primary schools um, that have to do SAT testing. Um, and there is a real pressure at that end to teach the test. So in the meantime, we're still faced with year 13 and year 11 students who, um, whether it's an exam or teacher-based assessment, have to end this year with a grade. And as Barnaby was saying right at the very beginning, 
there could be quite a gulf between where students are in the syllabus and where their teachers would ideally like them to have been had it not have been for COVID. Now, some of the subjects like history and English literature have had cuts to the amount of content that has to be covered, but not every subject has that. So, uh, first of all, I think you're wrong that uh, when you say it's, you know, just English and history or whatever, most GCSEs, I think all actually, have had some cuts. It's true to say that the, the cuts for A-levels have been modest. Now, the reason for that was that the Department for Education took the view, backed on, frankly, a lot of consultation with teachers and experts, that uh, A-level students are quite clever, quite motivated, you know, by definition, really. Uh, they, on the whole, only these days take three A-levels. They've got more time and they'll be able to catch up. That was the view that was taken. Whereas at GCSE, there's more pressure, actually. So most GCSEs have had cuts. Um, that's Although, is it fair point. to say, sorry to interrupt, is it fair to Go say on. that those cuts actually take, um, take the form of accommodations more? So in food preparation um, and sciences and design technologies, you can observe the teacher um, running experiments or demonstrating rather than actually taking them taking part yourself. Um, English literature, it's the teachers no, really need, no longer need to um, record and evidence. So this was about, as I understand it, expanding the amount of teaching time that was available rather than actually changing the content that might appear in a written exam. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. The focus was on, was on saving time because time is the problem. You're, you are quite right about that. Um, but the, And the reason that they didn't simply say, oh, well, let's cut, cut half the syllabus, is because they're very concerned about what happens to this problematic year group when they go on to their next challenge. So you don't want pupils in September 2021 starting A-level courses knowing significantly less than all their predecessors. And you don't want those leaving school next summer going on to university knowing significantly less than all their predecessors. So in order to avoid inadvertently damaging this year group more, they said, let's try and keep as much as we possibly can uh, in the syllabus, but find ways of saving time by, you know, to give you another couple, another example, cutting geography field work, you know, things which take a long time, cutting the modern language orals is another one. Um, so and just another point on this I would make, and that is that, um, you know, listening to you, perhaps certainly reading the papers, you get the impression that everyone has fallen miles behind. And clearly, many pupils in disadvantaged homes that didn't have access to computers or uh, internet did fall behind. Those who couldn't be bothered, incidentally, those who had the equipment but couldn't be bothered to do the work, they fell behind. Those who went to schools that equally couldn't somehow seem to organise things, they fell behind. But I don't believe that that's the majority of schools. I mean, you know, I, I'm chairman of governors of a state school they had very good online tuition right through the summer for uh, the year 12s, now 13s. Uh, and anyone who didn't have a computer was given one or could come into school and access uh, the lessons there. And, uh, you know, last week there was a good article in the Daily Telegraph written by Claire Wagner, who's the head of the West London Free School, which has quite a lot of pupils on free school meals. And she said her one of her worries it's not catching up because she thinks that her pupils have more or less kept up thanks to her teachers and her school systems. She's worried that um, 
if we spend too much time assisting those who have fallen behind, we might be holding back those who have kept up actually and can progress just as they normally would uh, in year, 11's, uh, year 11 and 13. So, um, you know, obviously there's a problem. We've got a problem that, that there are, you know, there's a significant number of pupils that need a lot of catch up. That's why the government has provided the money to give them extra tuition. Uh, personally, I think that'll be very effective. The um, Education Endowment Foundation's research has shown that, you know, tuition in the holidays, at the weekends, in the evenings, you know, pupils can catch up a huge amount. I mean, Ian and I know that from our own experience in teaching. After all, you know, we have taught for many years pupils, some of whom have missed a lot of work because they've been ill, or some of whom have arrived rather late into the school and have had to catch up. It can be done. So the key there becomes about how self-starting we can make these pupils, certainly where they've, um, they've been in a position for one reason or another, where they fell behind. Yeah, I was going to say, well, either self-starting or you force them. <laughs> you know. Well, I, I think that I think the biggest obstacle, and this is where we do need to get some clarification from the government, and quite quickly, is how there's going to be a level playing field for for pupils and for students when they come to sit their GCSEs or their A levels, um, because that is what the whole exam system is predicated on: is that the what, what is being assessed through the exam whether we accept that being the perfect way to do it or otherwise, is um, what has been taught by every student in every school that has followed that syllabus to that exam. And, and that's not the case. And it's patently not the case in terms of those that haven't had access to education in the, to the same degree over the lockdown period. Uh, and I think it's also very difficult now for teachers who are teaching uh, two-year courses uh, for GCSE and for A-level and will have been covering the syllabus in different ways and at different points to suddenly be marshalled into covering exactly the same um, in, in what could be a very truncated um, period of time. Uh, and, and I personally, and I, this is where I'm very relieved not to be one of the politicians having to make these calls, uh, I'm not sure that we can go to an, an exam system um, in the way that it's been before, even making the kind of allowances that we've talked about, because there are just so many variables across schools and across the country that means it, it's not going to be a fair process for every child that's sitting that exam. And, and that really has to uh, strike uh, not just at the probity of the uh, results, but also the kind of social justice about the education system for each child having uh, equal opportunity. So it, it's a it's a very complex um, conundrum to solve, uh, and it's one which is not just about education, but it's also about social conditions. And we know that there has been a strong correlation between those. Uh, students and those young people in areas of social deprivation not having the access during lockdown to um, education in the same way that others have. And, and I know that there have been mitigations, and Barnaby uh, cites those in, in certain schools. But if we look at across the, the board, those that have won through, if, that, if that's the right way to, to put it, won through lockdown have been those in schools that have been well-resourced and able to keep learning going. Those that haven't have been at the ones where it's been more difficult for a variety of reasons, not least of which um, the, the area uh, in society that, that, that they come from. Do you think there's any um, political will to be that creative with um, how these exams work in the short term, given that 
everything that seemed to happen with the GCSE and A-level results, um, certainly to my mind uh, in 2020, was to protect the system. So you provide grades in order to move to your next educational step. And that seemed to be the, the entire purpose, rather than looking at something that was more flexible or adaptable to a changing situation. Well, I, I would imagine the term algorithm has been expunged from the Westminster lexicon <laughs> uh, for the foreseeable future. Um, how creative? I, I don't know. I mean, perhaps I'm an unreliable witness uh, on, on the, uh, the predictability of, uh, of the Department for Education. Um, I, I think there is a genuine deserve, uh, desire to get it right. I think, you know, from all quarters, from political quarters and from schools, we want to get it right. And I think that the experience of the summer has shown um, what a burden there is on society to get education right for our young people, because um, some of the backlash against the way in which it was being conducted was not just about the grades, but about the way that young people were feeling disenfranchised and, and separated from their uh, rights to uh, progress their, their lives beyond school through education. So I think there is a common goal to try and find a solution to this. Um, what that will be and what that will look like, difficult to tell. And Barnaby? I think the thing is that, I think the thing is that um, if we're going to solve this problem, we need to get on with it. You know, I, I mean, Robert Halfen, chairman, the chairman of the Education Select Committee, has got an article today uh, saying, you know, he thinks that various decisions need to be made by uh, the middle of October. But actually, I think that, you know, Ian and I know that those decisions should already have been taken. Um, I can only say again that this year will quickly run out and um, the time to act is now. Now, the government hasn't done nothing. First of all, they've said, let's try and get everyone to catch up so that they don't know less than any previous cohort when we get to next September 2021. And that's the billion pound catch-up fund. And if, the, if schools can organise catch-up tuition properly using, you know, an army of recent graduates, perhaps, retired teachers, volunteers, and really make maximum use of weekends, half-terms and holidays in the short time that's available, then, you know, that may make a big difference. And it needs, obviously, to be targeted on those who have fallen behind. And then, secondly, there's the adjustment to the exams themselves, that they should happen a little bit later in the year to give a bit more teaching time. That seems sensible. The syllabuses are being cut. If it was me, I would have uh, placed a little bit more emphasis on giving more options within exams so that people can choose an option rather than having to answer every question, which tends to be... Uh, what GCSE and to some extent actually A-level courses look like these days. Um, right now, if you ask if you ask me about the DFE, obviously the DFE is paralysed with fear um, because so much has gone wrong for them in the past month uh, that that you know they cannot afford any more mistakes. But that's where that's where we are, and you know if schools can use that money well, um, then a lot of the problems that we see right now in terms of you know how much do these pupils know probably not that much uh, all those problems can be can be uh, overcome to some degree you know i i think you're right uh, i think that the the best mitigation is to try and make sure that that everybody's getting the resource they need but the 
the issue over which no one has any control really is, is the spread of, of COVID and the effect that will have on schools that have to close or year groups that have to self-isolate for, for a period of time. Now, nobody knows what that, that particular picture is going to look like. It's not looking particularly promising at the moment. Um, and I suspect in, in, the, in the weeks and months to come, it's going to become even more so. Now, if, if that situation prevails and there is not a good online uh, alternative that will keep that learning going for those key groups leading to examination, then I don't think it would be fair to, to ask those students to, to sit the same exam as those who, by virtue of the fact that they've stayed relatively COVID-free in the area or in the school that they're at, and therefore haven't had that degree of disruption. Um, so in, in some ways, it's not about education, it's about COVID, and it's about how that the impact that's going to have and the spread that that will have. And I think that does make it very difficult for, for the education department to make any, any planning, because it will always be thwarted by the ability for, for, for youngsters to, to access learning when they can't get to school. And also that makes it difficult, doesn't it, for the pupils themselves, because they are increasingly aware of the world around them. They will know that teacher-assessed grades is a possibility. They will know that further disruptions are um, likely, if not um, inevitable. So it's difficult for them to work against that backdrop. But presumably the advice has always got to be, you carry on until you know different. Yeah, uh, but also, I, I don't know why we're thinking about t- teacher assessed grades as being the end of civilization as we know it. You know, teachers know their, their children, they know the ones they're teaching, they are professionals. I think it has been slightly uh, unfortunate over the sort of political um, debate that's ranged over the summer uh, about uh, the aspersions cast over the professional judgment of teachers. You know, teachers know what they're doing. They know the uh, judgments that they're making. And as I said earlier, certainly in our school, uh, when we produced our uh, centre assessed grades, there was a lot of care uh, went through them and a lot of internal moderation. We weren't just picking numbers or letters out of a hat and sticking on a piece of paper. And I don't think any school was. And if there were, those are the schools that need to be uh, called to account. But that's not to suggest that that was uh, the the broad uh, principles that were being applied. I think professional standards getting it right for the students that we're teaching, but being fair and being accountable were the precepts that everyone was deploying. Well, and there are two aspects. There's, um, on the one hand, that the centre assessed grades, um, as done by teachers, were evidence-based, but also um, how the pupil would have fared on their best day, um, which obviously doesn't happen in exams um, in, in all circumstances. For whether that's fair or not, it's still... Um, it reflects why we had a 40% inflation in the top grades, for example, because teachers were being um, optimistic, um, if you like, about how those performances would be um, would have would have performed in the exams. My school were under chairman of governors, the London Academy of Excellence in Newham, where a high proportion of the pupils would be classified as disadvantaged. Um, that the now year 13 pupils kept working right through the summer term, were provided with online lessons, computers if they didn't have them. We require them to come back to school uh, in late August, the week before the term began, to take a set of difficult exams, demanding exams, um, to prepare them for the uh, new term and to enable the teachers to guess what UCAS predicted grades they might be given. All of this is possible. I believe it's possible if a school wants to. It, you know, that school does not have a, a good resources at all. Uh, we get 
you know, well under £5,000 per student per year, we managed to do it. Mm. And I think, as you say, there's no difference though between the A-level students who um, you would hope have got to that point where of, of self-determination, I know that I want to do this because I now know what my next step is. They've um, they've been through the rigour um, or rigmarole of exams, and so they, they understand what's what's needed of them, and they can independently learn, you would hope, to a, to a greater degree. My heart goes out much more, I think, to the GCSE students who are still so young, I mean, many of them being 14, um, not yet 15, so actually to to try in a situation of adversity uh, if the school's not able to provide the kinds of things that um, that Sidcot and others are actually does feel like it's an uphill battle especially if the sun's shining as it was in April I mean speaking as a parent because my, my son is in is in uh, year 13 and therefore the balance of whether it's his A-levels or otherwise is is very much uh, unknown and he has come back very uh, aware of what may happen or may not happen is and is committing far more than I would have imagined he would have done to assessments and to the work that's being set set for him. So, you know, I I, I think the kids get it. You know, I think they know that their education is is not given and they don't take it for granted. So, uh, you know, I hope that somewhere in whatever's decided, um, the, the young pe- pe- person's point of view is is considered, and this doesn't just become a game of politics, um, which I think would be. A shame for, for for all parties. My thanks to Barnaby and Ian for, I'm sure you'll agree, a, a really fascinating look, not just at the situation of this year's GCSE and A-level exams, but also the wider look at the purpose of exams and the function that they serve. This year continues to be a roller coaster for our young people. Our experts agree there's a really good chance that exams are going to be cancelled. But without a radical overhaul of how students progress through to further and higher education, it seems that a grade will still be required. That leaves a question over how best to assess the progress students have made and how to determine a fair outcome for them. As Ian points out, teacher-assessed grading isn't anything new and for some will make a lot of sense given how well they know our children, although it's also clear that some kind of moderation will be required to ensure commonality between how those assessments were made across schools. And even if exams were to take place, it's going to be tricky to ensure a level playing field when there's such a startling difference in syllabus coverage across the student population. When you add into that mix the unsettled feelings that our young people are inevitably going to be feeling right now, it's a fairly bleak picture. However, even against this backdrop, or perhaps regardless of it, shouldn't our young people really be focusing on the one thing that they should always have focused on? And that's to do their best. Whether there are exams or not, getting into a rhythm of working to demonstrate what they're capable of will only serve students well, if they come to sit exams or if they take part in some centre-assessed grades 2.0. This year may not bring the opportunity to pull it out of the bag at the last minute, which, as Barnaby said, can be a really powerful motivator. But, as Ian pointed out, our young people are, are aware of the importance of their education and schooling. And so perhaps the next pressing challenge will be how to look for new ways to motivate themselves and move forward. Thank you for listening. I hope that you found this episode informative and interesting. If you did enjoy the episode, I'd be really grateful if you'd give us a five-star rating. It does help us to reach others who might benefit from what our experts say. And of course, 
You telling your friends is also another great way, and it's always really appreciated. There'll be another episode next week, so please don't forget to subscribe to the Study Sessions podcast. <laughs>